This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, February 25th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Delving into the world of crypto art and non-fungible tokens. A history of Mr. Potato Head, or I'm sorry, just Potato Head. And a few links to help you chill out this weekend. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There is a huge trend blowing up right now that it's possible you've never heard of. Or at least if you have, I bet you're the only person that you know IRL who has heard of it. It's the non-fungible tokens or NFTs scene where people are buying and selling digital art for thousands, even millions of dollars. Now, before I get into it, a disclaimer, this segment is really for folks who have barely heard of NFTs or are trying to understand a little bit more about it. If you're up on the trend, or you want to be more so after listening to this, definitely check out the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, where host Brian McCullough has been covering the explosion of the market and analyzing where it might go next. But all right, so what the heck are non-fungible tokens or NFTs? Kenny Schachter, who has been making digital art for over three decades and has recently been delving into the NFT world with cautious enthusiasm, defines NFTs as, quote, digital artworks hosted on a decentralized peer-to-peer network. In other words, it's a way of layering imagery onto the cryptocurrency blockchain, end quote. And author Robin Sloan describes them as, quote, a special kind of entry designed to stand apart. It's just a distinguishable object with unique characteristics. There's nothing radical about that. This newsletter is non-fungible in that sense. But these cryptographic objects are tracked and bought and sold inside a system that is otherwise currency-like, so their distinguishability becomes noteworthy. Radioactive dollars in Scrooge McDuck's money bin, end quote. So it's digital art. Schachter says a lot of it right now looks like screensavers or video game stills being bought and sold for digital, or rather, crypto money. Like earlier this month, Chris Torres, the creator of NeonCat, sold a remastered version of the NeonCat GIF on a newer crypto art platform called Foundation and ended up selling for 300 Ethereums, or about $560,097. And that's not even close to the biggest sale in the crypto art world. But how did it all begin? Quoting Schachter and Artnet, Some people would argue it all began in 2005 with Pepe the Frog, the sad frog meme created by Matt Fury that became a symbol for an imaginary currency in a pretend Reddit market to buy and sell memes. A 2017 computer game called Spells of Genesis by Everdream Soft later utilized FD cards to be bought and sold as digital assets among players. Communities of traders sprouted around these early-stage digital tokens, and the first to take hold was Counterparty, a crypto platform that used the Bitcoin blockchain to store its data. NFT digital art arose from these early initiatives, namely Rare Pepe cards by Mike, a member of Counterparty, who issued online trading cards with significantly no game attached. 
That was the benign enough breakthrough that brought us more or less to where we are now. Rob Myers tokenized his soul in a 2014 work fittingly enough entitled My Soul, and now everyone seems to be doing the same, from the singer Grimes to the painter Canyon Castator. End quote. And if you want to learn more about Rare Pepe, I will once again recommend the documentary Feels Good Man about Pepe creator Matt Fury and his journey of bewildered passivity and then resistance to the way his beloved comic character was co-opted. It only briefly touches on Rare Pepe, but it will give you a broader context and is just overall a phenomenal film about social media, artistic copyright, and the swirling vortex of memefied hate that exists in many undercurrents online. But getting back to NFTs. Schachter really emphasizes that the art appreciation, or even understanding of art, in the NFT world is pretty low. Now, I'm not sure how much of that is true and how much is his bias, but there you go. One big advantage of it, though, and a reason this is picking up so much speed, is that you can flip what you buy almost immediately, because it's digital. You know, there's no physical item to maneuver and ship around, and quoting Artnet again, you certainly won't get any pushback from the artists since they have resale rights, pegged at 10% on average, built right into the smart contracts layered onto the Ethereum currency these works typically trade in. Bitcoin has the potential to do away with the centralized banking system, generally speaking, and NFTs are a potential body blow to the traditional gallery setup, which is already under tech attack as direct buying on Instagram looks set to surpass brick-and-mortar purchases. For the youngins, anyway, they don't need any convincing that this is the wave of the future, nor do crypto investors who had made untold billions in Bitcoin in the last 45 minutes, end quote. And it's important to flag here that you're not buying the copyright for any of these digital items. Sloan explains it by using the example of CryptoPunks, the first crypto art project of this kind, quote, when you buy CryptoPunk number 2890, you are not buying an image of a little blue dude. Rather, you're buying an entry into a ledger that associates your identity, yours alone, with CryptoPunk number 2890, an image of a little blue dude. That's it. That's the deal. End quote. So someone creates some crypto art, a process called minting, which costs money, called gas, and then other people bid on it, someone wins, and the winner can keep it or sell it again. And Sloan zooms out to say, quote, Listen, if you look at this stuff head-on with a cold alien gaze, it seems absurd. But then, if you look at art head-on with a cold alien gaze, it also seems absurd and tenuous. As the trenchant Abe Burmeister wrote on Twitter, Anthropologically speaking, there is near infinite evidence humans like owning scarce objects, and also like to turn common objects into socially constructed representations of value. Combining the two seems pretty reasonable. Hard part is getting people to agree on which objects. And continuing from Sloan, This is really 100% social. It's about conjuring a dream of ownership, of value. I think all of this feels more natural to people who are immersed in the fine art market or the market for rare limited edition sneakers, etc. I'm not. These are markets in which scarcity by design is a huge part of the fun. And that's not true for all or even most markets for creative work. I'm thinking of the market for, say, streaming TV shows or science fiction novels, in which the fun, as well as the value, comes from abundance and shared enjoyment, not scarcity and sole ownership. 
So while some of the companies building these protocols and platforms make grand pronouncements about reinventing the economics of, like, all creative production, I think it's more accurate to say they're establishing a new kind of fine art market, one with some useful and provocative new capabilities. And he continues... The whole thing is silly, but a lot of things are silly, and humans do them anyway, and derive great pleasure in the doing. End quote. And, I mean, yeah, it really is something that makes you question, what is art, after all? What is money? What even is digital versus real when we spend so much time on our screens exchanging communication, creations, goods, and services without ever touching anything more than our keyboards? What does any of it mean? I may barely understand all of this, and I'm sure I got some things wrong or incomplete here, but I do respect it, and I'm very curious to see where it goes. And credit where credit's due, I found the piece by Robin Sloan in a recent issue of Ryan Broderick's Garbage Day newsletter, in which he also, because if anything, Broderick is always here to make it weird, shares one of the latest crypto art platforms on the block, Crypto Kitties a fun-looking but outrageously expensive site to collect and breed digital cats. Broderick points out that most of the bro types in the crypto world scoff at crypto kitties or anything too cutesy or feminine, which honestly just makes me want to root for it all the more. So yesterday, the internet was aflame with discourse about Hasbro making Mr. Potato Head gender neutral. Except that did not actually happen. A Hasbro press release just said that they were renaming the brand from Mr. Potato Head to simply Potato Head, so it could more accurately encompass Mrs. Potato Head and other products in the line. They also announced their Create Your Potato Head Family, which is a package that comes with two large potatoes, one small potato, and a bunch of accessories so kids can make the family look however they want. Hasbro said nothing about any of these changes being gender neutral, or the change being so that kids could make potato families with two dads and two moms, although the box does show two potato parents with mustaches, among other less explicitly gendered parent combos. But nonetheless, some outlets read between the lines, and we got an avalanche of headlines about Mr. Potato Head going gender neutral, and then the expected response from some people about boycotting Hasbro for promoting the gay agenda. Because how will we ever raise good and moral children if they can't even tell what gender their vegetables are? The whole thing was blown out of proportion, but it does finally give me an excuse to talk about something I've had filed away for a while now, the history of Mr. Potato Head. So for any of you uncultured swine who don't know, Mr. Potato Head was invented by a man named George Lerner, who, not unlike many people throughout the ages, as a kid occasionally created dolls for his sisters using vegetables from the family garden. Building off this tradition in 1949, Lerner had the idea to create a kit of body parts that you could insert into a potato to make a doll with a funny face. As Kimberly Boyd, an SVP and GM at Hasbro, who currently works on the Potato Head brand, says, An enormous mustache on a potato is a universally funny sight. The thing is, even though making dolls out of vegetables was already a penny-pinching activity, World War II had just ended, and rationing was fresh on people's minds. Companies didn't think people would want to waste valuable produce on a toy. 
But Lerner eventually found a company willing to distribute his little toy body parts as prizes in cereal boxes. And with that going all right, he kept pitching his idea and eventually won the favor of a small school supply and toy business called Hassenfeld Brothers, who would later shorten the company's name to Hasbro. They bought the Potato Head kit from the cereal company, and Mr. Potato Head was officially released in May of 1952. Now, just like the cereal prize version, this kit did not come with a plastic potato. It was just body parts and a few accessories, hats, eyeglasses, a pipe, that you were meant to stick into a potato of your own. Sounds a bit weird to us now, but Mr. Potato Head was a hit, selling over a million kits in the first year. Of course, that may have been helped along by the fact that the Potato Head kits were the first ever toys marketed directly to children. In fact, they were the first toys to have a television commercial. I'll put a link in the show notes to the earliest Potato Head commercial I could find from the 60s, which will show you what the parts looked like in a real potato and other assorted fruits and vegetables, because despite the name, they actually marketed them as being able to be used on any produce you wanted. But when did all that produce get replaced with a plastic body as we know it now? Well, the journey to an unspoilable body began in the 60s when, quoting the takeout, parents looked up from their vodka martinis and figured out that their kids were ingesting the small pieces and cutting themselves with the pointy ends. By the late 60s, the Child Protection Act of 1966 and the 1969 Child Protection and Toy Safety Act were both passed, allowing the FDA to ban toys that were deemed unsafe. Hasbro pivoted, placing Mr. Potato Head's face and body parts on less sharp, more kid-friendly pegs. The only problem was that kids had trouble cramming the parts into their rock-hard potato bodies. By 1964, the company decided to include a plastic potato body in each kit, getting one step closer to the Mr. Potato Head prototype we know and love today. Although it wasn't until 1975 that manufacturers doubled the potato body's size and increased the accessory dimensions to make the toy even safer for kids. End quote. And from there, there was no stopping Mr. Potato Head. He and his family, Mrs. Potato Head, Brother Spud, and Sister Yam, have been on quite the journey since their mid-century inception. Quoting again, In 1985, Mr. Potato Head received four votes for mayor of Boise, Idaho, a campaign that won the Guinness World Record for most votes for Mr. Potato Head in a political campaign. In 1987, the character became a spokesspud for the annual Great American Smokeout, surrendering his signature pipe in an effort to get with the times. Mr. Potato Head even starred in an ambitious art installation after Hasbro commissioned Rhode Island artists to paint 37 six-foot Mr. Potato Head statues to honor the toy's home state. End quote. And, of course, in 1995, a disgruntled Mr. Potato Head co-starred in the groundbreaking first Toy Story film, which, according to estimates from Hasbro ahead of the film's release, boosted Mr. Potato Head sales by 25%. Toy Story was apparently a huge boon for all of the classic toys featured in the movie, like Slinky and Etch-A-Sketch. And now, Mr. Potato Head has been fully inducted into our contemporary era by being the center of a single-day culture war on Twitter. It's beautiful, really. And don't forget to mark your calendars for April 30th, which is National Mr. Potato Head Day. Yes, it's a real thing. And no, I don't know if Hasbro will also be renaming the holiday to simply National Potato Head Day. 
So NASA today officially named its DC headquarters after Mary W. Jackson, the first black woman engineer at NASA. You may be a little familiar with her as portrayed by Janelle Monet in the movie Hidden Figures. And in addition to being an aerospace engineer and mathematician, Jackson eventually went on to lead programs in NASA's Equal Opportunities Office to ensure that future women engineers, especially those of color, would be more readily included going forward. And if you are looking to just chill out this weekend, Jason has shared a couple of cool sites this week on Kaki.org, one in which you generate blobs and another where you draw an iceberg to see how well it'll float. You can pair those sites with any number of the very chill music and ambient sounds he's been sharing lately. I'll put two that I particularly like in the show notes, but he's got a bunch more on the main Kaki.org site if you haven't scrolled through there recently. But anyways, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.